have some understanding of this chapter better than maybe right now. Um, but let's go ahead and open up there if you're not already there. Um, I would like to begin with just reading some of the text here. Um, we'll read the first six verses together, so as soon as I get there, we'll, we'll do that. First John chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, it says this, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God, or is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God, and whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. And by this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Now, like I said, if you're just now joining us in this study, or especially if you've never read First John... This is going to be really cryptic. Um, when I read it, I listen to some of the words in this. I've read it several times in preparation for this lesson. I've read it through my life at different points. It still seems a little bit cryptic. It's like, what is he talking about? John has these words that he likes to use um, maybe more frequently than some of the other writers of the Bible like to use them. Um, for instance, you'll notice spirit is like said a bunch of times in this text. And depending on like... Your frame of mind, when you come to this reading, you might assume different things about that word, right? On one hand, you might assume spirits as in like just random otherworldly things that zip around, right? Like spirits in that sense. Or you might think spirit as in like vigor or fervor, right? Or you might even think spirit as in if you've grown up a Christian, maybe you automatically think Holy Spirit. And this is of God. Anytime I see spirit, I think that way. Um I'm not sure John means any of those. I'm not totally sure exactly what he's zeroed in on, but I do know the context with which he's using it, which helps me kind of grasp that. And so I wanted to kind of start with that. Um, in this section in chapter 4, he's moved on from talking about things like in chapter 1 about how there's a word of life that's come and how we walk in light. These are themes John talks about a lot, love and light and darkness and he even talks a lot about abiding, like God abiding in you, you abiding in God. He's going to talk about that in chapter 4. We'll talk some more about that. Um, he also has a lot of the imagery of, of the world or not of the world. He uses that uh, dichotomy a lot. Um, but as you get into chapter 4, he shifts gears a little in that he wants to talk to whoever he's writing to. Remember in past lessons we talked about how he dresses them as little children um whoever he's writing to he has a relationship with and now that he's talked about some things he wants to get into maybe what we might call the nitty-gritty but he doesn't do that the way that someone like peter might do it and he doesn't do that the way that i might do it he does it his way he does it john's way and the way that he does that he talks about it in terms of spirits and what he says in verse 1 is, hey, you don't need to believe every spirit. That's important to know just by itself. And maybe for some of us, that's really basic. And it's like almost like that's assumed. But it's really important that John tells the people that he cares about 
that are Christians that have placed their faith in Jesus. Now, like, hey, there's a lot of stuff going on. Like, you're going to hear a lot of things. You're going to see a lot of things. You probably are hearing and seeing those things right now, and you don't need to believe them all. I think that is the sense with which he talks about spirits in this text. I think if we, if Paul were writing this, because Paul is much more uh, A plus A and B and then C, right? Or one plus one is two kind of thinker. John is much more thematic and poetic. Um, Paul might say it like, don't listen to the false prophets and false teachers, right? These are the doctrines that we need to hold to. This is the teaching of Christ. And he might, he might list it out and say, and if you follow this, well, then you're of the law, right? Or things like that. John's going to say, don't believe every spirit. And he's going to say things like this, but test the spirits. Because to me, when I hear that, because spirit is such a nebulous idea, I think, well, how do I like measure or test a spirit? Like, what am I supposed to do with that? Well, I think John's just saying like, hey, test the things that you're hearing or experiencing or seeing test them. And what he means by that is whether they're from God, you're like, okay, well, how do I sort through that? Right. A little bit later here, a couple of words later, he says, many false prophets have gone out into the world. And here's how, you know, the spirit of God in verse two, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ. All right. So there's one indicator spirits that talk about Jesus Christ. You're on the right track, but it's not just that it's every spirit that talks about Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, there's another aspect, and is from God, there's another aspect. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus, there's one, is not from God. Okay, so Paul might say this different ways, but John wants to tell the people that he cares about that are trying to walk with God in the light, as he's talked about, that they need to test the things that they're hearing, the spirits, so to speak. And if it's not of Jesus, and it's not about how Jesus is from God, and it's not about how Jesus had a body, he was here, then that's a spirit that you don't need to be messing with, right? That's, as John would say it, that's a spirit that has failed the test, right? I, I tried to, like, be, and I'm not a super intellectual person, like, academic intellectual, I'm logical, but I tried to get that way with this text and say like, oh, maybe there's something in the Greek or I don't know what I'm doing when I get into all that stuff. I do know that the word for spirit here is the same word that's for spirit always. And so that's not super helpful. It can mean a lot of different things. But I think the context is the most helpful thing in looking at this. John's saying like, look, people talk. There's words, there's messages out there. And those are spirits that you need to test. Okay. And I think about us in this room, and I think we're doing the same thing all the time. We might not say we're testing the spirits. We might not talk like that. But that's what we're doing when we're weighing something against some truth that we know. We're testing the spirit of that thing. And John is saying that, hey, Christians, that's what you need to be about. Like, you know the truth. You've placed your trust in Jesus, and everything has to be weighed against that. And you know the message that he's from God. He had a body. He was here. He was, you know, we might insert other things. He was crucified and he raised again. And like, these are the things that you know. And if there's a spirit that comes that's different than that, then reject that thing. Don't listen to that. That'd be part of verse one where he says, don't believe every spirit. Right. It's important that me, like that I, that you, if you're a believer, make this a habit. That we don't just accept anything that kind of 
tickles our fancy or sounds good or makes sense just on the surface, that we actually have this habit of taking what we do know, what's concrete about God and about his will and about Jesus, and using that as a testing method for the things that we hear and that we experience. Um, And that's what John's really advocating for here. Um, And so I think as he speaks to the little children, I will not speak to you guys as little children, um, because I don't think I'm in a place like John was to say that. He was very old probably when he wrote this. So I'll say friends, fathers, sisters, we need to test the spirits. But you'll also notice he says a few other things about this this type of spirit, this one that doesn't pass the test. He also refers to it as the Antichrist. I won't assume anything about your backgrounds or your experiences, but I know I've heard a lot of different things about this kind of hot word, this Antichrist. And there's honestly a lot I still don't understand about it, but I know the way that John talks about it is it's a very like testable thing. And it's a very like contemporary or current thing like it's happening he's saying like if people if spirits if words or messages don't pass this test then they're anti-christ they're not something that you should be spending time with right i mean obviously in english if we break down that word it makes total sense like they're not of jesus they're anti-christ right And so we may hear a lot of things about Antichrist this, Antichrist that, but I think fundamentally, most practically, we say, well, is it of Jesus or is not? And if it's not, if it's a message or a spirit that's not of God and of Jesus that we know is of truth, then we could call it Antichrist. um, Even as he says in verse 1, we could even say it's of false prophets or false teachers. We also see in verse 4, as he refers to them again as little children, he doesn't just speak about like the things to avoid, um, which is maybe how my brain works a lot, as I think, okay, what are the negatives I zero in on and like filter those out? He actually talks about like what has, they've already done well, um, which is an equal equally important facet of I think even testing spirits and like remaining steadfast as Richard was talking about in our Proverbs class in verse 4 he says little children you are from God and have overcome them for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world so there's our in the world not in the world conversation that John's been carrying throughout his writing to his little children What's important to see that John's talking about here is they've already accomplished something. Um, They've already paired, you might say this way, they've already been paired with or partnered with the right spirit uh, in the language of this paragraph. You might insert that. When we're testing spirits, we get a lot of don'ts. Like, it doesn't need to be this, it doesn't need to look this way, and, you know... Uh, It needs to say this. It needs to be of God and from Jesus and about the flesh. Um, But what John's going to end up talking a lot about as we move forward in this chapter of his writing to these little children is how they can look at themselves and know some things about what is true. Because they've already placed their trust in Jesus. 
they're Christians, and John writes about that in his own unique way. But if you were going to like bullet it out, they've already done the things necessary for them to be considered God's people. They've heard the word. They know the story of Jesus. They've placed their faith in it. They've confessed that truth. We'll talk more about that in chapter 4. They've been baptized into the body. They've been forgiven of their sins. They're living in grace, and they're trying to give up the world and its, its sinful desires and change and to be like Jesus. They've done like all these things. We could list out more, I'm sure. But John's saying in his own way, look, you are from God. Right? We might say you're born again. Right? You've been regenerated. You say it different ways. You are from God and you have overcome them. Speaking of the false prophets and these other spirits, you've overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. It's really important that if you're a believer that you can look at all the things that have already happened and you can know them. John looks at that and he's going to offer this as really the anchor of everything he talks about. He's already done it in previous chapters and I'm just reiterating it. This is really hard for me personally. Because John writes so experientially and relationally and even figuratively, but he uses those things very concretely, which is a difficult thing for me to wrestle with because by nature, I feel like those things are not concrete. They're fluid. They change and they, like, they come and go. Relationships are never like the same, right? But John talks about like you have overcome, you are in God, right? And because you know these things, it's actually going to inform how you act and what you think and uh, how you move forward. It informs how you perceive those spirits or those others, false teachers, because of what you've already experienced or what you've been a part of. Verse 5, or sorry, yeah, verse 5. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world. And guess what? The world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So again, maybe that's our definition, the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Maybe those are the spirits that we're testing. If you want to know if something's the spirit of truth, then use the criteria in 1 John 4. Right? If you want to know if it's the spirit of error, here's your criteria. Right? Like You have this, this separation of both. But... Here's something that we need to think about in practical ways. Are you from God? And I don't mean that in like a, a creationary standpoint, though that's something worth considering is if you're agnostic, if you don't even haven't ever considered there's a God, then that's something to consider that you are from God, like you exist because he exists. But what John is actually saying is not like your literal presence. He's talking about Christians, people who have been born again or regenerated or however you want to say it, they have a new life in Jesus who is from God and who had a body. And that's the good news. That's the gospel, right? And he's saying, you are from God and whoever knows God listens to us. Now, us is obviously John and some other people. I would assume it's the other apostles that he's uh, been working with for so many years and spreading the gospel Maybe there's other people he has in mind that have been laboring with him with these children. But are you from God? You have to ask yourself that question. Would God look at you and say, yes, like that 
that person is mine. Like he or she is mine. And not just because you feel like God would like you, but because you know, that's what John's talking about, because you know you've done what God requires of you for you to be his and for you to know his son. And not just like, no, we're going to talk about later in chapter four, this confession. That's the no. You've confessed a truth. But do you know and do you listen? John's saying that these children need to listen to him. Do you listen to God's people like John? Like if you're from God, he's saying, then obviously you listen to us. Have you ever listened to John? Have you listened to Paul or Peter? Have you listened to Jesus himself? If you haven't, then if you backtrack a little, then you're probably not really from God. Because the contrast was in verse five, people from the world, they don't listen. They listen to the world. They listen to just stuff. But people from God listen to John. I would expand that out to say you listen to Peter or you listen to Paul or you listen to Jesus or, you know, these people sent from God, you listen to them. Those are two, I think, very plain um, applications for you today is think about am I from God? And subsequently, maybe a proof of that is whether or not I listen to the Bible, to the writings of God. Um, I can't answer that for you. You just have to be honest with yourself about that. Moving into verse 7, this next part that I said, everything is kind of builds off of the things that a Christian knows, um, which is challenging for me because they all seem fluid, really begins in verse 7 and is anchored in love. I had, um, I I appreciate Josh volunteering to read because James isn't here today, and he read from John chapter 13. Well, when we read that, that's what it was about, right? It was about love. And that's what John writes about in verse 7. So let's, let's read this next paragraph here in verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world, so that we might live through him, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, and if we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. Just like the first section, there's like all this talk about spirits, and like you'll notice if you're just like chiming in to the reading, it's like love, love 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 me personally and i'm just going to speak for myself here i would never think to use this as an indicator for whether or not i'm of god i just wouldn't have that's not the way my brain works that's not how my personality works i would have had something a little more measurable something a little more objective right i would have been like you know you're of god if you read the bible once a year you know i would come up with something like that that was really measurable But John's talking relationally, and he's saying you can know some things. You can know the spirit of truth from the spirit of error. You can know, you can test the spirits, and primarily what he's anchoring on is how you're from God and you've already overcome. And then here in verse 7, he's saying it's because of the love. I would have never thought to, to make that a diagnostic as firmly as he does, but it's fair. 
It's a teaching from God. In fact, he begins verse 7 by saying, like, you loved ones, right? Beloved, let us love, for love is from God. John is the one that pins, right? God is love. He's the one that that makes it so clear for us in, in the writing of the Bible. Obviously, that's true if you read the Bible. But God's the one that puts it like that. God is love. Do you believe that? Um, do you trust that that's true? Do you, if you're a Christian, know that's true? Do you have love the way that God has love? All of us are, if we're honest, we say no, because we're not perfect like God. But that's not what John's saying. He's saying, do you love like God loved? Do you make it an aim to love like God loved? In fact, whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. That's an interesting thing. We talked a little bit about this idea this morning in Proverbs, just like this kind of statement, right? Like, if I exercise wisdom, does that inherently mean I'm righteous? Well, the way the Proverbs kind of talk about that, right, is it kind of seems like, yeah, like, oh, if I exercise any kind of wisdom, whether or not it's informed by any kind of spirituality, like, I would be righteous in that moment. That's kind of how it reads. That's kind of how John reads when you talk about love. It's like, oh, anyone that shows love must be of God, right? When our experience tells us otherwise, right? Like we've experienced love from people who also clearly had no like knowledge or interest in godly things, right? So what John is saying here is not that anytime you feel like affection in your life, then that must be a godly person or a godly thing because what he defines here for us in this text is actually a little bit later look at what he says in verse 10 in this is love not that we have loved god but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins beloved if god so loved us we also ought to love one another i mean i love kirby i hope she knows that, and I hope all of you know that I love Kirby. But, like, my romantic feeling for Kirby is not what John's talking about. My love for my mom and dad is not what John is talking about. Um, what John is talking about is this, this love that is, like, self-sacrificing, is selfless. Um, what John is talking about is sacrifice sacrificial love and specifically as we saw it in jesus that's why i think john anchors on love is because when he was talking about the spirits that seem so hard to discern one of the things that he says is like the diagnostic is that jesus is from god and that he was of the flesh well why is that important because it helps me understand love if he wasn't from God and he wasn't of the flesh, then how do I know what love is and how do I practice it? Because he was here and he did have a body and he shows us what he did with it. He died. And he offered it because God sent him to do that. And so when I read verse 7, let us love one another for God is of love and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. What is inferred in that is I know who Jesus is, and I copy that kind of love. And those are concrete things. And so what I can know is I am born of God if 
I love like Jesus love, not if I just love in any sense that we might say love, right? There's been a lot of people in my life that I've loved that I didn't really love, right? Um, like I would say the word love and then God would say, no, that's not what that was, <laughs> right? Like we've had crushes. I've had moments even with people that I, I really do love that that thing I thought was love that wasn't. It was just me being happy or me doing something for me or whatever. Jesus shows us what real love is. In fact, uh, I, I found this quotation. I thought this was interesting because this idea of propitiation is not one that I'm inherently familiar with. The only time I ever like read this word or say this word is when I'm talking about Bible stuff. Like I've never heard that word come up ever in any other context. And so I looked it up just to make sure I knew what it was. I had an idea, but I looked it up. But it carries this idea of a sacrifice that is actually like a religious thing. It's like a sacrifice that appeases wrath, particularly the wrath of God, right? It's something that's offered to appease that wrath. And so what is being said here is that Jesus loved us, and actually that love meant wrath for him in some sense. Um, we, we have teaching in the Bible that tells us this. Like even Jesus on the cross feels forsaken in some sense. There's other teachings in the, the Bible and scripture from the apostles that talk about how he took on sin. There's prophecies, how he carried burdens, right? We have an idea of like, wow, that was really bad that Jesus' like life ended. And it was even really bad that like he was hurt a lot before he was actually killed. Like that sounds terrible. But there's really this idea that makes Jesus' love important and meaningful and I don't know, that we should copycat it, like we should mimic it because it took on even wrath on the behalf of someone else. That's the part that is really hard. I think there's an altruistic sense in which we want to be self-sacrificing and selfless in our love. Like even our society kind of lifts that up, but it's a lot less appealing to think that you actually will take on wrath for someone else. Like, you'll actually receive wrong, not because you did anything wrong, but because you didn't want the other person to bear that, right? That's what Jesus did. This, this quotation, if there was to be reconciliation between God and man, man ought to have sent to God, right? The offender ought to be the first to apply for forgiveness. The weaker should apply to the greater for help. The poor man should ask of him who distributes alms. But here is love that God sent. He was first to send an embassy of peace. That's even what Jesus said in his life. Like if you realize your brother has something against you, you don't go send a delegation to like wake up the brother and have them come to you. Like you go to your brother. Like Jesus was teaching this kind of thing all the time. He was showing us love all the time. That's what Jesus did for us. He was the greater. He was the rich man. He was of God. And yet God made the first move, right? God did only what he could do, right? To right the wrongs was sending Jesus himself. So verse 12, no one has ever seen God. That's true. Um, if you read Exodus, I've been doing like a daily reading. And since it's like just now February, I basically just got out of Exodus. So it's fresh on my mind. It seems like you'd think, like, maybe Moses got to see God. He got really close, closer than 
really a lot of other, anyone else almost, other than Jesus maybe or the apostles would have seen. Like he kind of got to hide behind that rock and kind of see God pass by. And like he heard the voice of God like declaring qualities about himself. And he only sort of saw the glory and he like his face was shining. And that happened some other times too in the tent of meeting and things like that. But God, even with that, is still saying to John, and the truth of it is, no one's really seen God. And as great as that was, we still haven't seen God, even in 2018. Right? Like, we haven't. Um, so, if we've never seen God, how do we show God? How do we know God? Well, John anchors it in love. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected. Better idea of that is completed, made whole in us. Let's read verse 13. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he's given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, also, uh, as he is so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment and whoever fears has not been perfected in love, we love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. We were looking at verse 12, right? No one has ever seen God, but immediately... The way that he wants to continue that thought is, if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. If we were to stop at verse 12 I'd, I, and I never read further, I'd kind of be like, okay, like I maybe see where you're going with that, but I don't really understand what that means. But as you keep reading as we did, verse 20 is really helpful. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he's seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Um, There's something about love that makes the unseeable seen, right? We understand that even. Like, I would think, I, I look around this room and I feel like most of you are friends on some level, right? My friends. Whether you're my friend or you're the friend someone sitting next to you. The love, the compassion, whatever, in that relationship kind of places a feeling or something tangible on something that's unseen between us, right? I think that's kind of the idea that John's starting to hit at, but he's hitting at it in a much bigger way. He's talking about you and God. And he's saying, like, God abides in you and you and him, which I don't know how that makes sense, but it works. Like there's a oneness there, almost like we think of like husbands and wives sharing a oneness. There's a oneness between God and those who are of God. But the the way that you see God, the way that you feel that is in love, right? And so he says in verse 12, if we love one another, 
God abides in us, right? He ties it all together. Like love is the thing that we feel and we see and we know to know that God's there, right? And not just love generally, but Jesus' love, right? But in verse 20, but if I don't love Angela or Robin or Daniel or Steve or whoever, then how could I possibly love someone who no one, including myself, has ever seen? That's the point that's being made. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God also has to love his brother. So John anchors the spirit of truth, testing the spirits. You can know about your relationship with God based on how you love other people. And not just, I love you, we're friends, we're nice to each other, we have similar interests. But like, I'm willing to do hard things for you. I'm willing to take wrath for you. I'm willing to do the sacrificial things that it takes for you to be well off, right? And not rich, well off, but right with God, well off. I'm, I'll, I'll pay that cost. Your love reveals to other people some, something, God, that's never been seen. I think that would be John's answer. I'm inferring here. I'm just kind of guessing. If you said, John... Describe to me God, what does he look like? And you'd say, love. And you'd be like, well, I was looking for like, you know, like, uh, what, does he have arms? Does he have legs or eyes? He would just say, oh, God is love. Like, do you love your brother? Yeah, well, that's God. God abides in us. Like, he might say things like that, right? Because, did you know Jesus? Do you know what he did? Yeah, well, that's, that's God. That's love, right? And as some part of me still doesn't love that answer. Like, I'm kind of like, yeah, okay, I get it, you know. But for John, that was everything. Like, that, that was it. Like, if you missed that boat, then it was just kind of like, well, what else do you want, right? Remember, I asked you from verse 6, are you from God? I asked myself that. Am I from God? And one of the things that we listed out is like, well, do you listen to John? Do you listen to the Bible? Do you listen to Jesus? The other thing, are you from God? Like, do you love believers? If you're not loving people around you, and obviously Jesus talks about even loving your neighbor. Who is your neighbor? And then it's a much broader definition than anyone expected it to be. If you don't love the people around you, then I think John would say, are you from God? No, you're not. So we have to think about the same thing. Are you sacrificing for the people to your left, to your right, to the people at your workplace, to the people that you go to school with? Are you taking on things that seem unfair and wrathful and not cool because you want them to flourish and know God? Um, Unfortunately, I feel like the answer for me oftentimes is no. Um, But what John is saying is not that we'll be perfect in this, but what is your aim? Where is, are you being made complete or perfect, as he says? Because he talks about this in language that is, is it's happening. Like we have overcome in verse five or verse four, sorry. Um, but in verse 12, his love is perfected in us. It's almost like it's always happening. It's always being complete. When I think about uh, Josh references in Bible class this morning, but he talked about the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5. You have a lot of qualities that kind of have no end. Like you can never really check it off. 
you know? And another thing is it's not comparable. So, like, Kirby can have love for someone, and I can have love for someone. And, like, we both have love, but it's not the same. It's not comparable. And, like, maybe her patience, she has it, and I have it, but her patience obviously is greater than mine. But God would still say that, like, I'm exercising patience. Like, I'm a patient person because it's me. It's relative to me. Like, I'm growing in that quality, right? I think maybe what's being said here is that love is one of those things that, like, we act more and more like Jesus. And so in that sense, it doesn't really have an end. But also, verse 12 is telling us, like, at any given moment that we're pursuing that, we're complete. It's almost like we're getting completer and completer. I know that doesn't really make sense because my brain would tell me, well, then I was incomplete. But I don't think that's how God sees it. You have love like Jesus. And tomorrow when you've grown a little bit more, you still have love like Jesus. And you still have. And so in verse 12, no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. If you want people to see God, keep completing that love of Jesus. So, John chapter 4. There's a lot of things we didn't really touch on in this chapter. Um, We talked about uh, love primarily. We talked about testing the spirits. There's also a little bit in here about how we can have, um, or rather how we can not have fear of punishment on the judgment day. Uh, That's listed out in verse 17 through verse 18. And that completion of love that we were talking about, like in verse 12, appears again there. And it's that thing that actually drives out whatever fear we may have about being judged. So isn't it interesting how John takes something that is, to me, so fluid and so non-measurable and stakes everything meaningful on it? He says, you can test the spirits which doesn't seem possible. But then he says, you can know that God abides in you and in us by the love that I have and that we have. And in fact, in verse 18, that that love that Jesus had that we're mimicking pushes out fear. If you think back When Jesus was about to be crucified, he had this moment in the Garden of Gethsemane that I think we would all describe as fearful. I think that's fair. He's like sweating as blood. He's like asking God, like, save me from this hour. I know, like, I could be delivered. Like, you can just imagine maybe some of the things that aren't recorded for us that he said because he prayed a long time. It seems like fear... And so I think what Jesus modeled for us is not an absence of that in the strictest sense. Um, But because his love was complete for us, it pushed it out. It wasn't that he didn't feel it, but he pushed it out, right? And I think that's what John is saying we need to do, is our love is completed, right? We push out fear. And rightly so, because at the end of the day, Jesus was okay. He resurrected. He's the king. He's been placed on the throne. He's been given dominion, glory, and honor forever and ever. And so what we're seeing is, 
if we can push out the fear, we have, we shouldn't have any worry about judgment because we've completed love. We've pushed out the fear that comes with, with not loving, right? So natural questions arise, a few of which I've already asked you to consider. But the last one is, are you afraid? Do you have any fears that the idea of a judgment reveals to you? That's a tough question. And the only person that is going to be able to answer that besides God is you. And the only person that you're going to cheat by not being honest about it is you. Um, So don't let perceptions or uh, your own littler fears keep you from asking that question honestly. And if the answer is yes, I have fears about the judgment day, it's probably one of two things. One, your love has not been completed in the way it should be. And I mean that in all the ways that John means that. And that means a whole lot of things, but I'll just leave it at that. And two, the other possibility is that you aren't dwelling on what you can know. Like maybe you do have everything you need to have, but you've let Satan work his magic, his tricks, and let you question what you do know. Because John talks in absolutes. You can know, you have overcome. Love has cast out fear, right? So if you are born again of God, if you've been able to answer that question and yet you still have fears, well, then those are tricks. Those are deceits of Satan. But if you have legitimate, like if you have fears and it's because you're not of God and you aren't completing your love, then you have to wrestle with that right now, today, tomorrow, every day, because you have fears that are founded. They're real. And you have no hope in a judgment if it were to come tomorrow and you're still not of God. And so the thing about those things, I don't say that because I like saying it. I hope you guys know that. I just say it because God says it. So if there's anyone that has a need, if you want to talk to the person you're left or right about that, if you want to ask for prayers from the group, whatever that is, whatever you feel is kind of the right way to to start making corrections and changes, this song that Richard's going to lead us in is really meant as a time for you to contemplate that next step. And if there's something we can do for you, let us know.